Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode five in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled Preaching Christ Crucified and Risen According to Scripture, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, we have the privilege today of walking through one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached in church history, the Great Pentecost Sermon by the Apostle Peter. And we're going to see him giving us a clear example of how to weave in Old Testament prophecies uh, with very convicting words. He's able to cut people to the heart concerning their sins, but he's also able to marshal evidence uh, of Jesus' life, his miraculous life and his, his death and his resurrection. And so he gives us an incredible example that we can use, not just in preaching, because most of us aren't preachers, uh, but in proclaiming the gospel to lost people. So it's going to be an exciting study today. Well, let me go ahead and read beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope." For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Up to this point, Peter's not mentioned Jesus Christ at all. What's the connection between verse 21, where we concluded last week, and mm -hmm. verse 22? Well, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, so that's the Lord Jesus. So absolutely, there's a strong connection. The Lord is Jesus, and so he's very plain about this. This Jesus of Nazareth, and mm. off we go. And it's interesting, he uses that term, Jesus of Nazareth. So the one who uh, was raised in the, in the uh, despised town of Nazareth, in the despised region of Galilee, this Jesus of Nazareth is the very one who is proclaimed, he says, uh, both Lord and Christ at the end. So it's interesting, you know, liberal theology, you know, makes a distinction between the historical Jesus and the Jesus of myth, 
let's say, or the, the Jesus of religion. Um, Jesus Christ is an assumption made by believers that he's the anointed one, etc. Jesus of Nazareth is the historical figure. Peter uses the same, uh, the both terms to mm. talk about the same man. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is Jesus Christ. So that's the connection. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And so he goes off and gives the basis by which we can call on the name of the Lord. Along with this reference to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, what other historical facts does Peter cite in the case that he's making in verses 22 through 24 here? All right. So first of all, he says he was a man, he's human, but he was accredited by God to you. So what's your translation say then, verse 22? Attested to you by God. So attested to, accredited to, God testified concerning him. This is very strongly asserted by Jesus in John chapter 5, where he talks about um, testimonies given. John the Baptist gave a testimony, but God did himself. Mm. And he did it at at, uh, baptism. When he said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, he spoke, um, God spoke from heaven. But also he uh, testified to Jesus or uh, Jesus was accredited um, by God by his signs and wonders. Again, Jesus mentions this in John chapter 5. The very works the Father has given me to do, which I am doing, testify concerning me. And so it it worked this way. John chapter 9, the man born born blind. Uh, Jesus spits, makes mud, wash, uh, puts him on the man's eyes. The man goes away to the pool named Siloam. He washes off, and his eyes are open. Mm-hmm. And you can see. Mm-hmm. Then the guy gets hauled up in front of the Jewish uh, police, effectively, the religious police, the Pharisees, and they are grilling him about his healing. And, and you know, they're, they're saying, you know, we don't know. We know that God spoke through Moses. We don't know where this man came from. And the blind man, the man who had been blind, said, now that is remarkable. Hmm. You don't know where he came from, and yet he opened my eyes? How can that be? It's so obvious he came from God. If he were not from God, he could do nothing. That's one healing. Jesus did thousands of healings. So he was a man accredited by God by signs uh, wonders, miracles, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So it was a river of miracles. Keep in mind that huge populations, the whole city of Jerusalem went out to Jesus and he healed them all. So every disease and sickness, one preacher says that Jesus effectively banished illness and disease and demon possession from Palestine for a three-year period. I don't. I, that may be an overstatement, but not. it's not far from that. Huge numbers of people were healed by Jesus. And so he's saying, look, in verse 22, you yourselves know you were among those perhaps who were healed. Mm. Parenthetically, just because you are physically healed by Jesus doesn't mean that you are converted. Didn't mean that you necessarily believe that Jesus was the son of God. So this is an audience ripe and ready to be ignited by the Holy Spirit into faith in Christ. So the evidence for uh, Jesus's um, status as truly the son of God were his miracles. Parenthetically, I want to say this. When we share the gospel, we need to have memorized some miracle stories. Hmm. Probably one of my favorite ones is the is, uh, favorite one is the uh, one of the four friends that bring a paralyzed man to Jesus, and they dig through a roof and they lower the man down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus says to this man, when he saw their faith, "Take heart, son; your sins are forgiven." Then people said he's blaspheming. Jesus said, "Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say to the paralyzed man, rise and walk?" But so that you may know. 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, get up, mm. take your mat, and go home. And he did. Wow. So I love that miracle story because it links Jesus' wonder-working power to the ability to forgive sins. So he was a man accredited by God by signs, wonders, miracles, which God did among you as you yourselves know. So the function of these miracles then was to testify that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Yeah, they are a valid basis of faith. Jesus said, believe on the evidence of the miracles. He said that in John 14. Go ahead. Who did the miracles? According to Peter's phraseology, though, in 22. This is a bit mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, God did them. Hmm. Uh, God did them through Jesus. And uh, he's going to say uh, when he preaches to uh, Cornelius later in Acts chapter 10, I think he says, um, let me look up and uh, all right. Uh, he says how God, uh, 1038, Acts 1038, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and mm, power mm -hmm. and how he went around do, uh, doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. So uh, Jesus did all of his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it was a triune work, Father, Son, and Spirit working together to do the miracles. You mentioned this a moment ago. Peter appeals directly to their personal experience of Jesus' miracles in this same verse. And you think their personal experience with Christ made them more ready to repent and believe in his name on that day? Absolutely. Hmm. Um, you know, you, you see what's going on there. Not only is Jesus' um, status as the Son of God and as Messiah being established, but he had tremendous compassion on people. He just loved them. He was kind to them. Um, he's moved with compassion to the leper and says, I am willing to be cleaned. Mm. I mean, he has a lot of tenderness and compassion. You think about, about the, uh, the woman, the older woman who's doubled over with some kind of, of, of kind of malady where she can't straighten up, like almost some kind of paralysis or something wrong with her spine. And Jesus says that Satan kept her bound all this time. Should she not have been released? You know, if, if one of your animals is tangled up in a net or caught somewhere, you'll do it, whatever you can, even on the Sabbath to release it. Should not this woman, who's a daughter of Abraham, be set free? So he had a tremendous, it wasn't just his miracles. It was, it was the way he loved people. It was the tenderness and compassion he showed. And so, yeah, Peter is absolutely saying, as you yourselves know, mm. to some degree, I would say all conversions are Jesus's conversions. He converts everyone. But these are especially Jesus's conversions. They are the fruit of his physical ministry on earth, mm. um, which was very circumscribed. He just was sent to the Jews, the lost sheep of Israel. He barely did any miracle for Gentiles, a couple here and there, mm -hmm. the, the Roman centurion servant, the Syrophoenician daughter, a woman's daughter, a few, but he mostly focused on the Jews and these. this is his harvest. Wow. Now, verse 23 has immense theological significance. Yes, it does. What was the ultimate cause of Christ being delivered up to death? How should we think about who really handed Jesus over to be crucified? And how does Peter's statement in this verse help explain that? Right. Um, some of the verbiage that we see in other, other passages is interesting. Um, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. So the idea of the giving up of Jesus, who gave Jesus up to death? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, the father did, uh, right here in this text, he was handed over to you by God, by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. So God gave him up in Romans 8. He says God gave him up for us all. But we also know that, um, that Judas Iscariot gave him up to his enemies. He mm. betrayed him to his enemies. We know that uh, Annas and Ca Caiaphas gave him up to Pilate um, to be condemned. We know that Pilate gave him up to the Roman soldiers to be killed. Um, 
and Satan was active as well because Satan put it in Judas to do it. So um, all of those actors are at work, and God's purpose is different than uh, Judas's purpose, is different than Annas and Caiaphas's purpose, is different than Pilate's purpose. Uh, all of them had different motives, and they'll all be judged for their motives, but the ultimate plan came from God. And so the language here is that Jesus was handed over, it says, to you. Uh, now, it's interesting there, the crowd handed Jesus over too because they shouted, crucify, crucify, remember? Mm -hmm. And so um, he was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. So God has an intention or purpose. What does your translation say there in verse 23? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yeah, this is not some accident, and he's going to definitely say this in Acts chapter 4 as mm. well. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. They said, Sovereign Lord, uh, you made the heavens and the earth, um, and etc. And then Herod and Pontius Pilate met together uh, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this holy spirit, in this sorry, holy city, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. Hmm. Um, they did what your power and will had determined beforehand should happen. So here's the thing. The plan was made by God before the foundation of the world. The book of Revelation says that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. So what that means, it was, it was a done deal. It was hmm. set. It was God's determined purpose and his foreknowledge. Uh, foreknowledge isn't just that God was aware it was going to happen. It was that he had decided that it would happen. It was his choice. So this is the sovereignty of God in the death of Jesus. Wow. So there's so much for us to unpack in just this one verse, thinking about uh, just the implications of God's plan and his will mm -hmm. for the world. How does Peter charge also Peter's charge, excuse me, also teach human responsibility in the sure. death of Christ? Yeah. Does Peter believe that these Jews were responsible and guilty for the death of Jesus? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He says you with the help of wicked men or lawless men hmm. put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So at the human level it is the greatest crime that has ever occurred. Hmm. And the reason I say that is because of the absolute, complete purity of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was sinless. He's the only, only one ever put to death who was sinless. And so you, you think of it that way, um, it was, it was a, an absolute travesty of justice. Mm. Pilate said again and again, I find no charge um, against him. There's, he's done nothing wrong. And so they definitely are guilty for what they did. It was a sin to kill him, but yet it was God's set purpose and foreknowledge. So what we have to do is we have to say you've got divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Um, people are responsible. And again, you have to look at the motive. What is the motive? Mm. What was the motive of the crowd? What was the motive of, of the, uh, the chief priests and the teachers of the law uh, that stirred the crowd up? Mm. Um, Pilate says it was out of envy uh, that they had handed Jesus over. It says that in Mark's gospel. So it was envy. They were, they were motivated by envy and also a zeal to maintain their position um, and not lose their position um, if the Romans uh, came in. Uh, everyone had different motives. Pilate's motive was he wanted to keep his position because they were going to go over his head and tell mm -hmm. Caesar. So he was afraid of what the crowd would do, and he just wanted to be done with the problem. So he just like gets, gets rid of it. He washes his hands of it. Everyone had different motives, and they will be judged for their motives, but God's plan was to save the world. Yeah, it's this incredible intersection, as you mentioned, of divine sovereignty mm -hmm. and human responsibility, where God is going to accomplish his purposes, even in the face of what seems like uh, something that would be at cross purposes yeah. with his intention. Yeah. But 
all the while working this out according to his plan. Yeah, it's amazing because it's a direct violation of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. Mm. I mean, and yet they murdered him. And so they violate the Ten Commandments and in so doing save, um, you know, for the elect anyway, save themselves from their sins. You know, I think the actual team, um, the centurion and his team that nailed Jesus to the cross, I think that's who Jesus had in mind when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He wasn't speaking about Annas and Caiaphas. He was not speaking about Pilate and all that. I'm just saying the centurion. And I think the evidence of that is when the centurion saw how he died, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So... You know, I fully expect the centurion and his team to be in heaven. So they nailed Jesus to the cross and in so doing saved their own souls. Wow. Yeah. Wow. In the next verse, Peter turns from Christ's death on the cross to his resurrection. Mm. How important is the resurrection in the apostolic preaching of the gospel? Mm -hmm. And how should this inform our preaching and evangelism? Yeah, we're going to see in the book of Acts, they almost pretty much never fail to mention the resurrection. They do it every time. And so it's interesting. They don't always mention the the crucifixion. They don't always go into substitutionary atonement, but they always mention the resurrection. Mm. And it is just the great evidence and proof of the truth of Christianity. He is the only religious leader that was raised from the dead. And so it's just an an astonishing thing. But here it says, you put him to death, but God raised him uh, from the, that's one of these great, but God statements in Mm -hmm. the Bible, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. And so, you know, again, this is the activity of almighty God. It was God that raised him. Now, also we need to see the, the activity of the Trinity. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back up again. So Mm. Jesus saying, I raised myself. But then he said, this command I received from the Father. So, you know, Jesus has power. And we also know from Romans chapter one, it was by the spirit of holiness that God raised him from the dead. So really no action happens on earth apart from the Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, and Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Mm. Now, for us, it's impossible to escape the hold of death in our own strength. Mm-hmm. How does Peter describe the resurrection and what implications does that have for those who would trust in Christ? Yeah, he says here, uh, God raised him from the dead, in my translation, freeing him from the agony of death. What do you have there? In loosing, loosing the pangs of death. Pangs of death. So death is a painful thing uh, and agony. There's an agony to it. And then I just love this statement. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So that's just omnipotence. Uh, Death cannot hold him. Mm. Um, The opposite is exactly true for us. We are powerless against death. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can do nothing to defeat death. And Mm. so we live in one of, you could call it one of the cities of medicine. It's not the only city of medicine. um, My hometown, Boston and Cambridge, there's a lot of research hospitals there and there's an awful lot of pharmaceutical companies Mm -hmm. in eastern Massachusetts. But here in the triangle, there's a lot of, uh, in Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area, there's a lot of pharmaceutical research, a lot of medical research. There's some great research hospitals here. doesn't matter what they're going to come up with. They will never abolish death. Mm. Death is is the last enemy. Death will be with us to the end. It's impossible for us to defeat death, but the opposite is true of Jesus. It's impossible for death to defeat Jesus. Mm. Now, in the following verses, Peter turns to this quotation of Psalm 16 that we mentioned last time we were together. Mm. How does Psalm 16 function in Peter's sermon, and how do these verses help explain Christ's attitude of joy in Hebrews 12? Well, let's go to the go to the key issue in Psalm 16. All right, there's a lot of, of poetical, flowery language. 
uh, about relationship. You know, the Lord is at my right hand. There's intimacy. There's friendship. There's connection. There's love. All of that. There's a delight in it. But bottom line is you will not let your Holy One see decay. All right, so the idea is decay, and, and Peter's going to zero in on the issue of decay. Now, mm. we know this from, from well, just from life. Uh, living things, as soon as they die, begin to be corrupted. They begin to stink. Uh, meat, uh, for example, begins to stink. Maybe you've had that experience of, let's say, uh, um, a, a chicken wrapper, like, you know, that little spongy stuff underneath the oh. chicken, like some chicken breasts, and it's like a hot August uh, a heat wave, <laughs> and you forget and put it in your in your kitchen trash can, and, and you know, you're gone for a day or so and come back, and oh my goodness, you mm-hmm. know, there's just this aroma, yes. right? We know from... Um, John chapter 11, uh, Martha is very concerned about moving the stone back because Jesus has been there four days. It's exactly the wrong time to be moving the stone. If you moved it back in four four years, it'd be fine. The bones would be dry. But while there's still moisture, there's there's bacterial growth, and it's going to be disgusting. There's a terrible odor. There's Mm. a stench. But um, the fundamental prophecy here is of someone who dies but doesn't decay. And who also is raised from the dead. My body will live in hope. So this is a clear prediction of bodily resurrection from the dead. And this is vital. Um, He's quoting Psalm 16 because it's a clear prediction that the Messiah Hmm. would be raised physically from the dead. Now, Peter's going to do some very accurate uh, exegetical work here saying it isn't David he's talking about here. So we'll get to that in a minute. That's vital. But the fundamental prophecy here is that the Messiah would be raised physically from the dead. Now, how does Peter say David knew what would happen in the future? And what particularly did David see about the Christ in the future? Well, he says, uh, look, uh, we're, we're going to zero in on David. David wrote the prophecy. He calls him patriarch, a patriarch, David. So that's a, a father ruler. Um, so David, um, he died and was buried. And uh, though uh, Peter doesn't say it, you know what happened after he was buried. His body decayed the very thing we had just said. Hmm. So David was not speaking about himself. Uh, Couldn't have been. So we'll get to that in a minute. But he said, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. 2 Samuel 7, that's the Davidic covenant. Hmm. When your days are over and you sleep with your fathers, I'll place one of your own sons um, on, on your throne and he will reign on your throne. And and it's an immediate fulfillment and then an eternal fulfillment. So he will have one of his physical sons who will immediately succeed him, Solomon. And so uh, when Samuel gives this prediction, not Samuel, Nathan, I think, gives this prediction um, in 2 Samuel uh, 7, he says, uh, when he sins, I will chastise him, but I will never take my love from him. And so, therefore, you have this Davidic lineage, a descendant of a physical descendant of David who would sit on the throne forever. The immediate fulfillments were a lineage, a genealogy of Davidic sons. Mm. Some of them were godly. Most of them weren't. Most of them were were sinners, wicked. Um, But God kept the line going until the the Davidic son, the son of David, came to fulfill. And he knew, David did, that God had had told him that one of his sons would sit on a throne and reign forever and ever. 
parenthetically, the first thing we learn about Jesus is the, uh, that he's the son of David, the first thing in, in the New Testament. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So the first thing we learn is that he's the Christ, but also he's the son of David. That's one and the same thing. He is the anointed one, the, the Messiah, the son of David. Now he says, look, um, David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. So that is prophetic vision, the ability to see. Now you look at Isaiah and it says, the vision that Isaiah the prophet saw concerning uh, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all these these different realms that Isaiah predicted. It's a vision that he saw. So David was a prophet, and he had a prophetic vision. By mm. the power of the Holy Spirit, he saw what was to come, and God moved him to write Psalm 16. Mm. And he's writing these words, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. He's writing these words, but it's not about him. Now, Old Testament scholars and people that teach Old Testament exegesis talk about uh, the author's original intent and the immediate fulfillments and all that. Look, the author wasn't writing about himself. There was no immediate fulfillment. There is no one other than Jesus hmm. who, was, uh, who died and who was raised uh, to live forever and never see decay. Lazarus didn't decay, I guess, in that four-day period, but he decayed later. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but Jesus alone. So this is prophetic scripture. It was speaking of the Messiah that he would be raised physically from the dead. Andy, before we move on to close, looking at a uh, few questions mm -hmm. from verses 32 to 36, anything else we need to say about Psalm 16? Yeah, Psalm 16 is magnificent. Um, you know, uh, I, I love the end of it. Um, you know, uh, here it's quoted in verse 28. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And Psalm 16 goes on, eternal pleasures at your right hand. Mm -hmm. That's heaven. Yeah. And that's what Jesus has won for us. That's what, uh, Wes, you and I are looking forward to that. We're going to go to a place of eternal pleasure. Mm -hmm. um, and it's at God's right hand. It's the pleasure of God himself, of the beauty of God and the holiness of God and the glory of God. That's where we're going. And Jesus led the way. He is our pioneer, our captain, and he's bringing us into the very presence of God by his resurrection. So that's what I look forward to. Psalm 16 is magnificent. Absolutely. How does verse 32 mm -hmm. fit into Peter's message to Israel? Well, it's historical fulfillment. Right, you have the prophecy, and every generation from David to Jesus had the prophecy, but now it's been fulfilled. Mm. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're witnesses. We, we saw him die, and we've put our fingers, if need be, in the nail marks and our hands on the side. We've touched him and seen flesh and blood. Uh, spirits do not have flesh and blood as you see I have. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't a ghost. He was bodily raised from the dead, and we are eyewitnesses. We're standing in front of you telling you we have seen Jesus raised from the dead. Witnesses. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're witnesses of the fact. So what verse 32 is, is the historical fulfillment. And that's what, what we have also in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and now here in Acts as well. We have the testimony that God raised Jesus from the dead.
What's the theological significance of Peter's claim that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God? And mm -hmm. what's the warning implicit in Psalm 110.1 quoted in these verses? Yeah, so that's where he gets it. Psalm 110, the Lord said, at my right, uh, said, uh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So he is exalted to the right hand of God. This is mentioned like five or six times in the New Testament. This is a very significant theme. Uh, the author to Hebrews um, talks about this, Jesus at the right hand of God. It's a position of absolute honor. Honor. Mm. It's uh, Jesus, uh, you know, because in Philippians chapter two, because he was willing to to become a servant and and die even to the point of death on a cross. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. It's a it's a, it's a name of absolute honor. Sit at my right hand, a place of honor. Um, and so he, from the right hand of God, is able to get the gift of the Holy Spirit. So interceding on behalf of his redeemed, who he has now shed his blood for, he is able to win the gift that he's now pouring out on them, mm. the Holy Spirit. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So the, the outpouring of the Spirit came because Jesus rose from the dead and is our mediator interceding on our behalf at the right hand of God. Now concerning the right hand of God and the rest of Psalm 110, there's an implicit threat similar to Psalm 2. The implicit threat is if you oppose this son of God, if you mm. oppose this son of David, you're going to get destroyed. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, here's the thing, and this can easily move me to emotion if I'm not careful, and then I'll choke up and it'll be hard for me to talk. It is impossible for us properly to measure the zeal God the Father has to exalt Jesus to the ends of the earth. Hmm. He, what, he, the beloved Son, obeyed the Father even to the point of pouring out his death under the wrath of God on the cross. His work's finished. Finished. Sit at my right hand. Now watch mm -hmm. what I'll do. Hmm. I'm going to make your enemies worship you. I'll convert them. I'll take out the heart of stone. And they were former enemies. They'll become your children. Or I'm going to crush them. Hmm. There's no other option. He's either going to convert you or crush you. And you're talking about almighty God. We're talking about the omnipotent God of the universe. Imagine having a God like that as your enemy. And imagine thinking you can bypass Jesus I could think about pious Jews who deny that Jesus is the Messiah. You cannot delight in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and not delight in his son. God will crush you. The fact of the matter is you have to honor the son. You have to kiss the son like Psalm 2 says. Mm. Uh, you better watch out or his wrath can flare in a moment. That's Psalm 2. There's an implicit warning there. If you don't love the Son and delight in him and submit to his kingly rule, he'll crush you. God will. And so that you can't, you, it's, like, it's brighter than and hotter than the Son, the zeal that the Father has when he says, sit at my right hand, and I'm going to make your enemies a footstool for wow. your feet. So it's a, it's a warning and it's powerful um, from Almighty God. What's the significance of Peter concluding his sermon calling Jesus both Lord and Christ. Mm -hmm. And what final thoughts do you have for us on these verses? Well, he doesn't expand on it here, but Jesus did. Both Lord and Christ. The Jews were expecting a Christ. They weren't expecting him to be the Lord. Hmm. So the incarnation, the fact that almighty God became man and the son of David and the son of God at the same time. They didn't see that coming. Hmm. Now, they could have in the son of man vision, um, but they weren't ready for it. And so Jesus said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Son of David, they said. Well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? 
For he says, Psalm 110, quoted right here, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Hmm. And no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They'd, they'd never seen it. It's right there. Wow. The Lord said to my Lord, I want you to know, therefore, verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. God, almighty God, has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is Lord and he is Christ. Hmm. Andy, any final thoughts for us? Well, I'll go back to verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's nothing more important than that. And so I believe that that's something that we do once for all time. The moment we call on him in truth and in faith, we are saved from our sins. We are saved from the wrath of God uh, that we deserve. But we also continue to call and we receive a continual salvation and mm. sanctification. So we continually, we keep calling on the name of the Lord. We keep crying out to Jesus. Um, and we are continually saved from indwelling sin and from all that sin can do. So I would urge all of our hearers, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, call in the name of the Lord Jesus. God sent him to die for us, but also raised him from the dead. Clear evidence in Psalm 16, he predicted that it would happen. Happen, and then the fulfillment of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, now here in Acts as well, clear testimony that eyewitnesses saw Jesus raised from the dead, call on him. Now, if you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, keep calling on the name of the Lord. Let him keep working his salvation out in your soul by sanctification. Well, this has been episode five in our Acts Bible Study podcast. And we want to invite you to join us next time for episode six entitled, The First Fruits and the Early Church, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.